Welcome to the Givology Impact Series podcast. Givology is a 100% volunteer-run online giving marketplace for education, which connects donors to grassroots projects and student scholarships around the world. Each episode, we share the stories, advice, and inspirations of social entrepreneurs and change makers around the world in education. I am Wuhi, your host for today. Today, we have invited Joshua Wilson. He is the founder and pedagogical director of Escuela Caracol, a nonprofit private school that provides educational opportunities for students in the Mayan community in Guatemala. Welcome, Josh. Thank you for having me on. Great. So could you tell us a little bit about your school, Escuela Caracol, and what it does? Sure. Escuela Caracol is a kindergarten through primary school grades, so a K-6 school located on Lake Atitlan in Guatemala. Uh, we're in a very small uh, village, an indigenous Maya village of about uh, 4,000 people. And at this school, the, we have about 85 students this past year, and 85% of them are from indigenous Maya families, um, either from our town or from a neighboring town. And those, for those students, uh, we look for nearly full uh, sponsorships for those students. The other 15, 20% of the school um, is international families and other families from Guatemala, from other parts of Guatemala. Um, and it's a, it's a very wide mix of students uh, who come from as far as, uh, sometimes as far as China. We've had students from China, students from all over Europe, all over South America. Um, we have a Slovenian student right now, uh, a Dutch student. So it's, it's always a mixture of languages and cultures um, that really make intercultural we're working with um, fascinating and, and interesting on a daily basis. Great. How did Escuela Caracol get started? So my wife and I and a local man here from San Marcos, we did the three of us basically founded this school in 2007. And it started as a homeschool group that we were doing, well, my wife and I were, were doing with our daughter who's four at the time. And um, it grew from being a small homeschooling group of mostly non-Indigenous. Um, during the course of that, uh, those early days, uh, local kids started to come by, local Indigenous kids. And by the end of the year, their parents were saying, we really want papers for our kids. And so we thought maybe the Ministry of Education does something with homeschooling. And they didn't really at the time. And so we found ourselves basically founding a school before we knew it. Um, and so since then, yeah, the, the impulse school has been very much to work on trying to create a bridge and using Waldorf pedagogy in particular, which we see as a uniquely um, a unique fit here in our community, which is made up largely of non-Indigenous people from all over the world and Indigenous Kakchikel here in our village. And so a big part of the school's impulse is to work with, with both sides of that, um, you know, it's more than culture really, it goes deeper, it's, it's consciousness in a way. Um, local people and, and Westerners or people from the other parts of the modern, modern world have um, a really different way of seeing the world. And we think that these two perspectives have a lot to enrich each other and that they need each other in this moment. Um, so, so, yeah, that's, that's a big part of what we're doing. It's, it's more than just educating kids. It's really trying to work these two components of our community that have very different socioeconomic backgrounds and everything and different languages and try and bring them closer together to learn from each other. 
How do you bridge these two different cultures that you mentioned, the non-Indigenous and the Indigenous in the classroom? Do you face any challenges? Um, and since you have a larger population of students who are from Indigenous population, how do you sort of go about making sure that their Indigenous cultures are respected in your classrooms? So one of our founding impulses really um, is to the local children who come to really connect with them in the sense that they understand, feel that they already know a lot. They aren't just coming to school to learn new things that we have to teach them. It's not just about you know, providing content. and It's also about helping them to see that they already carry a wealth of, of knowledge and experience. And so it's about trying to empower them in the classroom in that way. I would say that, um, you know, not just because of the higher percentage of Maya students, but also because of where the school is coming from with its mission, we do give a sort of um, precedence in a way to, or try to, we strive to, to Maya culture and really honoring it. So on a daily basis, they get each class in grades is working with the Maya calendar. Um, so the kids, all the kids become familiar with it, uh, which is a deep part of the culture. And since the beginning, all of the students are studying Kakchikau, um, which so for the international families, this is you know a very different uh, language for them to experience and to learn. And for the local families, often they feel sometimes that um, that we shouldn't be teaching Kakchikau. They would like to hear more English, um, and we do teach English as well. Spanish is the main language of the school, and then we teach additionally uh, in separate classes English and Kakchikau. <clears throat> but this challenges we face <clears throat> with local culture. Um, is that it's largely an illiterate culture, um, which we see not, it is in a way, in many ways in this modern world now, becoming a, um, a sort of deficit for them. But at the same time, there's a richness that's, that's present in the oral aspect of this culture that we really strive for. So, for example, the, the families may say, <clears throat> well, we don't need to learn more how we speak that at home, but they don't typically sing songs in Kakchikau. They sing songs at church in Spanish. Um, so at home, you know, there's not a tradition really of mothers singing lullabies to their kids, for example, in Kachikel. They don't write poetry in, in Kachikel, even in kind of old. It's not now. Um, this may have at one time, I'm sure, existed, but now it doesn't at this moment. So we're really trying to work with giving us language that, that is being increasingly uh, threatened by outside culture in the modern world. And so, you know, this, we live in a world now where uh, you know, indigenous languages are disappearing, you know, on a, on a weekly basis. Um, and so we feel like it's really important for the kids to grow up with a feeling of, of pride in their language and a feeling of I can express myself in my language and be creative in my language and to share in that experience with kids who don't actually come. Um, so, yeah, so that, the language is a really big part of, of trying to maintain and, and, um, and honor the local culture. Right. So part of your mission also emphasizes intercultural partnerships and honoring local Maya traditions. So I was wondering, in addition to um, using the local language, teaching classes um, it with Kachaka and using the Loyam, um, local Mayan calendar, um, what are some other ways you um, strive to be culturally responsive for the indigenous population? How does it work with um, the teachers that you're working with and the curriculum? Sure. Um, so the, the Waldorf uh, curriculum 
and Waldorf pedagogy in general, Waldorf education is very has a very puts a very high value on working with your hands. And um, this culture still has traditions of handwork uh, that are really deep. And we're talking about more than just um, the artisan weaving, which is so famous uh, in Guatemala, <clears throat> which is something that we do try and connect with. Um, but even as th things as simple as um, building your own house, people here, everyone builds their own house. Um, that's a lost practice in the modern world. No one builds it. Maybe they have a builder build it, but they, people here will actually lay each adobe brick or the, the whole process they're doing. Um, they're cutting firewood in the mountain uh, on, a, on a weekly basis and bringing that back to cook with in their homes. So in our kindergarten, for example, we have wood-burning stove. Uh, and the kids all helped do that. They helped with chopping some of the wood and, and um, getting the, the, the stove in the morning and making tortillas. Um, you know, so another aspect in the city, for example, there's a tradition here with maguey fibers, a cactus called maguey. They, they take the leaves process of beating the leaves and then soaking them in water and then turning them into string and then in, and it's a really strong really strong fiber that's used traditionally for ropes here as well there's a type of bag that um that they use here that was traditionally a bag that men would wear um and it's made of these fibers and it was three needles which is it's kind of an interesting art um so our sixth graders as a part of the their curriculum uh, every year they fifth and sixth grade usually it varies um connecting it with botany their study of botany then we look at this whole process these these are called morales um they make these these bags these morales and um so you know we look for all of these different ways to really connect with the culture and then really see how it connects with our curriculum that we're working with as well um that it's there's there's so many ways um and i still feel like in, in ways in, in many senses we're on the surface of, of what's possible uh, in terms of really connecting with the traditions and the strong sense of um, of the, the will that lives here in people. What are the response from the students? Do students really like having those classes? Um, do parents like it? What, what's the general response you get from the community? From, from local parents, most of our local parents, um, perhaps they attended till third grade, right? So they have very little education and they're uh, overwhelmingly grateful to receive any kind of education. Often they have this idea that um, I send my kid to learn to read. I don't know how to read, but I want my, ch my child to. And, and so that's about the extent often of what they really understand of what school is. And so when we bring in these other types of aspects, sometimes they, they wonder. But what we've seen, um, for example, I had a father who, yeah, he was one of these types who just really, I want to make sure my kid learns this academic stuff, you know, reading and, and these things that I don't know how to do. And he did, um, you know, with time. And, and then what he saw, his son was coming home and gardening in their home. And he, he came to me and he, he said, Josh, it's amazing that Danny comes home and he just starts planting seeds and he's tending a part of our garden all on his own. Um, and, and this is something that you know, people do still live very agriculturally here. People plant their milpa, their corn, and their squash, and, and that's a part of it. But um, people don't expect that that's going to in some way be on and integrated into the school. Traditionally here, education in Guatemala has suffered. Um, for the last 40 to 50 years, um, since the Civil War um, that happened here in Guatemala has ended, education, many teachers were disappeared in the middle of lessons from classes. Um, so... This idea of trying to think for yourself and, and, and act for yourself has been diminished 
over the years. And so education's in a really difficult state right now in Guatemala. And, and we're hoping that with our small school here, we're, we're putting our kind of grain toward, toward seeing an educational renewal here in Guatemala. And people are noticing. We've got national attention. Um, and there's a number of other schools that have come to visit us and had our teachers teach their teachers. Uh, even in our own town, we've seen, you know, we, when we came, uh, when the school began here in our town, the local schools did not teach Kachikel and did no, no kind of gardening. And there was no, barely even plants around their schools. And now the local, but all of the local schools, the local primary school, and local middle school, they both have gardening programs uh, and they both are teaching Kachikel. So and we like to think that we've we've had an influence mm -hmm. on that. Mm -hmm. Now I'm really curious, how, how are you as an outsider coming into the community and creating a school? Do you see challenges in doing that as an outsider? How do you sort of navigate the space? Yeah, it's it's tricky. Um, on the one hand, there's the feeling of being an outsider and the feeling that there's a sort of um, perception, I think, that as I said, they're two different consciousness, really, in, in a very profound way. And there's a sense in which I'll never fully understand and see the world like a, a local person here. So I will always be an outsider. And there's that element that no matter how close we get, there's always that feeling of, of being an outsider. I think that will change with our children um, here slowly. But um, so there's that aspect. On the other hand, being someone who is helping, who's founded a school and who still has a leadership role in the school, um, people in the culture here tend to look toward the leaders and in institutions and, and follow them often, um, kind of carte blanche. So pastors, um, school directors, uh, the mayor, people in positions of authority, and this is true in largely in Guatemala, um, but we notice it especially here around the lake, um, people tend to think, well, you know, you have all, you have all the answers. And, and again, as I mentioned, our approach has been uh, one, we don't, you know, actually, and you have the answers and we want to learn from you. Um, and on the other hand, we also feel, we, and we work with this idea in our school a lot, <clears throat> the wrong answer is often a lot more helpful than the right answer. And when you're, when you're trying to do creative problem solving, wrong answers have historically had much greater impact. Um, mistakes um, lead to more fruitful new avenues. So there's a, a difficulty sometimes with being in that position where people kind of just want you to, to tell them and where I'm continually trying to not let myself assume such a strong authority or, or leadership role. So the, that's, that's a big part of the two, two sides um, of the tension of being an outsider here, I think. I think it's really interesting. Like I hear you talking about how you see your role as like a person who wants to empower other people but not to like enforce anything on them being sort of respectful of what they have and their cultures and I think it, it connects a lot to what I personally value as well as what Givaldi values. What's really great about Givaldi in my opinion is that it tries to really connect with local grassroots organizations and that it's trying to bring personalized approach like niche approach to communities instead of having a real big like sort of movement go in there and wipe out the indigenous knowledge so it's really great to hear what you've been doing there um trying to be culturally responsive and aware of your your positionality but also trying to really empower the people I think it's really powerful mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's I, I feel it's a privilege to be a part of this work here and and it's exciting 
sometimes it's scary as well because you know you're you're it's kind of like in a way like chemistry um you know where you you put things together and you don't always know how they're going to react and and we see that with the children and and we see sometimes language blending and and things like that that you're not not always comfortable with but um but there's this life pulse at the school amongst the children uh, and an energy that comes from that kind of interacting that in the end is overwhelmingly. I mean, we've seen so many lives um, touched and transformed. Um, one, I think of one example of a young girl who um, came from a really difficult family and uh, abusive situation and, um, and, and uh, living very um, day to day. And she, when she came to our school, she had a really high, hard time talking, um, was very shy, and also had some other issues with stealing things from kids. And uh, other kids would, you know, why doesn't she, why isn't she following our rules or, or whatever? And and after about a year and a half um, of working with her at our school, um, she comes on Valentine's Day this past year, and she tells her teacher she has a special gift for the class, and she gets up in front of the class and she sings a solo. Wow. A song that she had prepared. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's we, we talk a lot with Waldorf Education that it's what we're doing is not about um, passing content on and information. Information is available to everyone. But what we're doing is really about transformation. It's about trying to help students develop their own sense of confidence and a sense of, um, of, of, of an ability to make a meaningful impact in the world. And, and, uh, and a love for learning that never ends. So Givaldi is featuring your Go Lunch program for our uh, fully funded in 2015 campaign. We're really excited about the program um, and what it can do for your students. Maybe you can um, take the, a minute to tell us a little bit about the program, um, what kind of impact it creates. Okay. Um, so the, the since we started the school, um, one of the experiences we had early in the school was um, at first we had the first uh, half of a year, I should say, that the school opened. We had students bringing their own lunch, and we quickly started to see that this was lunchtime in, in schools around the world can be a stressful time for kids when they go into a big cafeteria. They don't know where to sit, and did they have money for lunch today, or did, is their lunch what they brought good enough? And um, so that, that's a universal kind of experience, I think, in schools often. And so what we started to see was um, kids would bring, would come from um, wealthy homes, perhaps, and would bring a nice meal, grains and perhaps chicken and, uh, you know, a whole, a whole plate. And another kid would come with a mango. And, um, and this, this was really hard. And so very early on, we decided we provide the food for the kids as a, as a sort of way that there's a difference already between these kids and in this community that we want to try and mitigate that, which is already done. And developed a food program works with local traditional foods as well as um, working with other recipes from, from around the world. And, um, and it's a nutritious uh, really lunch. And what's also the other aspect of the program that's been so special is Teachers who've come to visit, mentor teachers, and people who come and see what happens at lunch are always so impressed. What you see is that each class starts to move and work together like a family that's putting a meal. Um, sometimes they've helped in the preparation of the food. In the kindergarten, they're always, they are always helping to, to prepare their food each day. 
Um, and the grades, um, they're so busy that there's not as much time. They do help with the actual preparation. But otherwise, um, you have a group of kids running to the kitchen to bring the food back to the classroom. Other kids are putting the desks together to make a big, long table. Others are setting the table. Others are um, you know, readying, readying, readying the classroom in other ways. <clears throat> and then before every meal, there's a moment of you know, giving thanks for the food. And, and the kids eat together and share this meal. And it's, you know, there's something so sacred about sharing with another person. And so it's a, really, um, it's a time we really try to honor together as a class, as individuals coming together. And then after the, you know, the same kind of teamwork happening to clean up, wash our own plates. Um, and so some kids are working on that and also washing the other pots and pans and others are putting the tables back into place. And um, so it's, it's a really meaningful time for building community. Um, and in a way that I think is unique, you don't often see um, this kind of a, a program, I think at schools in general, um, it's so often it's bring your own food or, or buy something period. Whereas here we're all sharing a meal like a family and, um, and it really helps to bring the kids together. And a lot, as I mentioned, you know, 85% of our kids are coming to us on sponsorship from local via families. And we live in a region, one of the most malnourished regions in Guatemala. And so these, many of these kids are counting on this food. They may in the morning eat perhaps uh, a piece of bread, perhaps, or maybe just a cup of powdered milk or sometimes nothing. And so they've come to really um, count on this food. And we've seen there's a nutritional center in our town um, that has some of their, their cooks um, have their kids in our school. And the, um, the people working at that center have noticed that our students actually are healthier. Um, so it's really the, the food's making a huge impact. I mean, students who are hungry can't learn either. So it's so important um, to the children, to the families, and, you know, and to the work we're doing at the school. Yeah, thank you so much for for participating on Givology's uh, Impact Series podcast today. Thank you for listening to Givology Impact Series podcast. Please stay in tune for upcoming podcasts. Our podcast is available online on YouTube, Pocket Cast, and SoundCloud. Thank you so much for joining us today.